children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. And if you take your Bibles out to Romans, we're going to be looking at Romans 8 this morning and, and probably finishing up there. I say probably because uh, there's, there's, there's a lot here. And, uh, and if we only get through part of it, we're only going to get through part of it. I don't think I'm on. Am I on now? There we go. Okay. Um, so we're going to read uh, Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to read to the end. We've read this passage a number of times and, and have focused on uh, what I believe is the foundation of what comes next in this section. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But Romans chapter 8, verse 26, begins this way. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we have come to this place and we have gathered and we have given one another greetings and we've sung and we've given and now we want you to speak to us and that is a daunting proposition for the people who've gathered and for the one who brings the word. We ought to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that means we ought to be active listeners and careful speakers. Because our nature, our tendency is to depart and to drift away from the truth. And so, Father, I pray for myself now that you would clarify and confirm those things which have been discovered in study, and for each person I pray that you would help them to apply the message of your word to their heart, that they might be transformed by the renewing of their mind, that they may hear your will in the midst of the words and know exactly how they are to walk and to live and to please you in the way that they seek to honor you. Father, we thank you that salvation is by grace, that it is built on the finished work of Christ, that it is received by faith, that that is clearly articulated in the word. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us then to see that we are created for good works, not saved by them, 
but created for good works, which you've prepared. Father, we pray that the word that we hear this morning would build on the foundation of Romans 8, 28, and that we would leave encouraged and emboldened, and we would head back into the world excited about what you have given us in Christ. We thank you for your kindness and graciousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Due to the uh, age and stage of of life that uh, I'm in right now, my my parents are, um, they're looking at houses. You know, they're trying to figure out where they're going to settle long-term for the the rest of of their lives after having uh, lived in in one place for many, many years. My my dad has lived in the same house his entire life, uh, with the sole exception of a few years after he uh, got married. He lived in in an apartment with my mom, and uh, then they bought the house that he was brought home to uh, after, after he was born. And they lived there up until just a couple weeks ago. And, and so as, as we're having conversations with them, I had to go uh, over the bridge to pick up Jack from, from the camp that he was at. And, uh, and so I was driving over there, and I figured I'd call my mom. And we had a conversation. It was a good conversation. You know, you call your mom, have these conversations. And, um, and so we're talking about it, things. But we eventually started talking about houses and the features of houses and the things that they're looking for. And, and I think after living in one place for so long and having gotten used to it, transitioning to a new space, and that is difficult. It's a good, good move if you're doing the right thing uh, at the right time. Uh, when you buy a house, you need to make sure it's got a good foundation, right? That's important. But, but when you're looking for a house, the foundation needs to be good, but, but then the focus shifts from once that is intact and it's good to what's the rest of the stuff that's above ground and built on top of that, right? I mean, foundation, you just ask, is it good? Is it, is it solid? Is it firm? And then you move on, right? You don't, just, you don't endlessly focus on the style of the foundation and the construction of the foundation. And, and will the foundation you know, provide for our family properly? You're just like, check, is it good? And let's move on to to the next things. This is kind of what I think is going on in Romans at the tail end of chapter 8, right? Romans 8.28 is powerful. It is powerful. And I hope parking there and spending five weeks on that was good for our hearts and our minds and our souls. To, To focus on these words, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That foundation of thinking and believing and embracing all circumstances is incredibly powerful. Isn't it? Think about that. If you love God and you are called according to his purpose, this is Paul's way of saying if you are a Christian, that means that everything that happens to you is for your good. This is not something that's promised to all people everywhere from all time. It's promised specifically made to God's children. And it is a sound and sure foundation for the Christian life. But it's just the foundation. Okay? And I don't mean to diminish it or weaken it in any sense by saying it's just the foundation. I'm saying this. If we focus on Romans 8.28 and then say all the rest of the stuff that comes is just fluff or dressing, right? If we, if we say this is the, the piece that we need to focus on, this is the verse that we need to memorize, and then we leave Romans 8.28 and I mean Romans 8.20 and 9 and the following verses alone and unmemorized, we miss important things about what the foundation has built on top of it, what we need to live in. Does this make sense? Yeah, this, this is, the rest of the chapter is the house that's built on the foundation. And you live in the house. The foundation is good and solid and supports the house, and you enjoy it and delight in the foundation without even knowing it when you enjoy the house. Okay? 
Let's, let's, let's check the foundation. We get the building inspector's report that it is good. And then we move on to the house. The foundation is that all things work for our good. But now we see in 29 to 39 the working out, the outworking, or the building out of our good. And this is a big truth for us to embrace and a major part of the good news about Jesus Christ. Theologians have called this section of scripture here the golden chain, that there is an amazing truth that's given to Christians about who they are and what God is doing in their lives because of the work of Christ. Verse 29 says this, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. So that's the first links of this chain. And then he says, and those whom he predestined, the pastor said predestined. Is this going to get controversial? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the golden chain, as the Puritan theologians called it, that, that if, if God foreknows you and calls you, you will be glorified. It's an outworking of the all things working for good, right? We're, we're told in the foundation that, that if you start at the bottom of these stairs, right, in the Christian life, and you just walk up them, right, that you're going to get to the destination that you're supposed to be at all things working for good. Paul here then lays out how many stairs there are and exactly what they are and, 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 and what happens along the way. In Christ, there is this, this golden chain, there is this process, this, this thing that happens that brings transformation to you. And it begins with the fact that God foreknew you. He knew you before. And he chose you to be remade in the image of his son. He chose you. Not on the basis of anything that he would do or that you would do. Not on the basis of the fact that you would one day have faith. Not on the basis that you were prettier or smarter or more talented than anyone. But merely because he is God and he set his affection on you. He chose you to be remade into the image of Christ. Based on my reading of the Bible, there is no other way to interpret these statements than that. There are some people who they'll try to make it about something else to keep God loving. And we'll talk about that in just a second, okay? They, they say it's not fair or it's selective and God's no respecter of persons. And all these things are true, but, but we cannot get rid of the word predestined and foreknew and still have a Bible that makes sense. They're words that we have to deal with. We'll talk about this in just a second. God chose you. He knew you before time and he knew you and predestined you to be remade into the image of of Jesus, that you would be refashioned. All of the, the work that's going on in your heart when you, when you feel the conviction of the Spirit and you repent, when you read the Word and it, it cuts you in a good way, you know, it, you're, you're like, oh, that's me. I need to change. I need to, to bring my life into alignment of that. When, when you have, have prayed about a habit for years and years and you're like, Lord, help me to be kinder to people. Help me to not react this way. And then suddenly you find that you're reacting the right way and you're like, Lord, you're changing me. You know, that's being remade into the image of Christ. And this happens in two ways. Three distinct stages. One is that when we put our faith and trust in Christ and the work that he's done on the cross and we say, I deserve to be punished for my sins, but he's taken my place. And, and we're, we believe that we receive his righteousness. We are, we are remade in the image of God's son at the moment that we are justified. God credits righteousness to us. But then there is the working out of it in our lives on a daily basis, all throughout the years of, of being alive as a believer, as certain things in our life need to be remodeled according to the blueprint, right? 
You know, you've got a temper, you struggle in this area, you struggle in that area, you, you make unwise decisions here or you sin there, right? The, the blueprint doesn't line up and God brings his loving discipline into your life and says that needs to be remodeled according to this blueprint. What's the blueprint? It's who Jesus is. It's his perfection and his love and his care and his faithful carrying out of the law in the right spirit and attitude and we are being remade into that image and then there is that final day when we meet jesus whether he collects us in his second coming or whether we go to him after uh, dying in our flesh right the bible says that when we see him we will be like him and i think that you will still be you in eternity You'll, you'll remember what it was like to be you and to have your unique thoughts and emotions and personality and makeup, but you will be free from the desire to sin. You will be renewed and remade, and you will be like him. And it will be what God has planned for you all of your life, the best version of you that can possibly exist that's still you. You're not just going to be some drone in heaven. You know, that's like, you're going to be you, who God made you to be. And you might think God foreknowing and predestining is unloving, choosy. And I think there are some people who love this doctrine in such a way that they're like, I'm chosen and this person's not. One, I think there's a mystery of who God calls to himself. And he pretty much could have called everybody around us. Right? We don't know who he chooses. We have no idea. We don't like the idea that God is unloving and choosy because it, we feel like it interferes with our evangelism. Right? We don't like the idea that God is unloving and choosy because we like the people who we are in relationships with. We love our family. We love our coworkers. We love our friends, and we want them to come to Christ. But I think we need to acknowledge that the scriptures demonstrate that a person, or the scriptures explain that a person, when they come to Christ in faith, when they respond, when they believe, when they experience transformation, when they're justified, and when they make it to heaven, the scriptures always give credit to God. They always give credit to God. We're saved by faith, through grace, yes, so that no one can boast. Nobody can say, I did it myself. That's the burden of the scriptures, to give all the glory to God. And the scriptures teach this truth. But what I love is when we look to Jesus and we say, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this question? I just, I don't know. There's something so interesting about the way that Jesus answers things. And I would say this to you. If you don't like this idea that God calls people to himself because it feels unloving, there's good news. There's good news right there in the scriptures. And you don't need to figure it out. Okay? Listen to what Jesus says. John 6:37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. I love this. Because there's a comma there, right? Jesus never just gives a piece of an answer. You know, he always gives this like mystery answer where you walk away and you're like, what? But it's so good. All that the father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Is everyone who God calls to himself going to get saved? Yep, you bet. Well, what about this person who's not called? Don't worry about it. Because if they come... He's going to receive them. Well, how does that work? I don't know. You know, we're going to get to heaven, and there's probably going to be a, a group of theologians, you know, standing there with all their books and all their facts and figures and charts and things. And they're going to be mapping them out, and Jesus is going to say, look, it's, this is the answer. And they're all going to be like, how do we miss that? It makes, it makes complete and total sense. Like, wow. No, actually, I think they're going to be like, whoa, that's amazing. Let's do what we're here for. Let's worship God and enjoy him. I think that theological questions are, are, are going to go away. Something interesting happened um, as I was uh, zipping through a field uh, on, on Friday to go and pick up Jack and, and Audrey from RVR. 
And uh, I was driving through this field that just looked like a regular field, right? Just green everywhere. Um, actually, I saw it when we drove up and dropped Jack off on Sunday. And it was just green, green field, right? You know, like, whatever. Uh, nondescript growth. But as I was driving through the field going in the opposite direction on Friday to pick up Jack, it was a field of, of sunflowers. And they were facing the wrong way when we drove through it the first time, you know? And I didn't even see it. Now I'm driving and I'm like, look at this. Like, they're endless. They're everywhere. They're, they're beautiful, you know? And, and I think that's kind of the way this truth is going to work. Like, we only see the backside of this. And we think like, oh, picky, choosy, unloving, oh, you know, what about this person? What about that person? You know, this God excluding people I'm trying to share. And he's like, no, not that one. And I'm like, but God, they need to be in heaven, like praying for them. And he's like, don't waste your time. That's what we think. When we think about predestination, it gets all complicated. I think we're going to get into eternity and we're going to be like, oh, I get it. I see how that works. On the flip side, for your life, think about this. If you are called, if you hear the truth that God forgives sinners and you say, that's me, I need salvation, and you hear the truth that Christ will save anyone who comes to him, and you're like, that's me, and you say, what must I do to be saved? And you hear, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that God raised him from the dead. Believe in that. Believe in his righteousness for you. Believe that your sins are canceled out. When you respond, you are in the chain. And you are going to make it. Because God has determined that you are going to make it. And so there may be times when you get tired and you feel weak and you feel like I am not going to make it past this obstacle or through this difficulty or I'm not going to make it past this hard time or I cannot bear this grief or deal with this problem. I just, I have struggled and I can. You can and you will because he is going to. Does that make sense? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to conformity to the image of his son. There is no failure there. There's no missing the point. You're predestined to conformity. You will be conformed to that image. Those whom he predestined, he also called. One of the very first sermons I ever preached was on 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will do it. Right? Three-point sermon. God's faithful. God calls. Man, I could go right into the call routine right now. Like the, the thing that I just, I, I was like, is it like a phone call? Is it like this kind of call? You know, I did this whole routine, which was entirely unfunny. Uh, and I've learned um, in the years that, that when I plan humor and I'm like, this is going to be great. It's never funny. Never. You guys actually laugh when I say something's supposed to be funny and then it's not funny and I said that was supposed to be funny. You, you, you like that. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will do it. When God calls someone and says, this is who you're to be, you're to come into a relationship with me, he supplies the energy and the ability and the power and all the things that we need for the transformation to take place. He doesn't call us to some monumental task. This is Mount Everest. Move it over here. And then give us a plastic spoon, you know? He says, if you've got faith like a mustard seed and you say to that mountain, move, it will move. What is, 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 like, do you actually think that it's your faith that moves that mountain or is it that God sees your faith and he's like, he brings the power. He supplies the ability. Those whom he called, he also justified. God calls people to himself and he gives them the righteousness of Christ, the sovereign power of the Father declaring that people are his justified children. And it says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. For everyone in this room, that's the step that's remaining. I think I said this here in the pulpit, but I think I've said it a couple times. I can't remember where I've said it, so I'm going to say it again. Um, a number of years ago, I was... I was talking with a, a head deacon of a church. 
and I had just finished preaching, and I, I was talking about church unity, and I was talking to them about um, the, the need to be unified around the gospel, and I was, I was just sharing all kinds of things that were the burden of my heart for that church, and he said to me, I've been in the church for 60 years, and I was like, good for you, you know, like, it's good. It's good to, to have been in the church a long time and to know the truth and have these things thoroughly built into you. And he said, I've been in the church for a long time. He said, I just hope I've been good enough that one day God will say, you can enter into heaven. And I thought, you've been around the truth for so long and you don't know this? Like, this is the foundation. You, this, this, you, should, you should have this figured out a long time ago. I was able to say, hey, I got good news for you, right? And I, I hope, I hope he received it and believed it. Those whom God justifies, he will glorify. I love the fact that he goes right from the declaration of righteousness, that, that you are righteousness with the righteousness of Christ, to you will be transformed and stand in glory. There's no, like, if you do these 17 things, right? There's not even three steps. It's not three payments of 1999. It's, you know, it's, it's just transformation right there. If this happens, if he says you are just, you will be glorified. No intervening steps. Listen to what Paul says when he's writing to the Philippians. I gave it a little context here because I think it makes it sweet. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began a good work in you when he called you to himself. When you believed and said, I need salvation, I need redemption, God began a good work in you. And as you struggle and fail and repent and renew and come back to Christ again and say, I need transformation, Lord, change me. Holy Spirit, fill me, transform me. Paul says that God's going to bring that work to completion. He says, I am sure of it. Now, let me just point back to the fact that this is built on top of Romans 8.28. Everything that happens to you happens to you for your good. God doesn't waste materials. God doesn't waste your experiences. God doesn't throw anything away. He uses it all to prod you forward and push you on and move you along by the power of the Holy Spirit towards transformation into the image of his son. And so don't give up or despair. You're going to make it by his power and his grace because everything works for your good. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and then verse 10 demonstrate this. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, right? God is the one who predestines because he foreknows and he calls and justifies and then glorifies. And those pieces, that process is all connected. It's the work of God. It's the gift of God, not of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Right? He's the one who's doing the work. He's the one who's transforming us. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand. So that we could walk in them. There's tremendous success in those verses. God is the one who is bringing us along. That's a foundation or that's, a, that's a truth that's built on the foundation of Romans 8.28. That all things work for your good. Oh, really? What kind of all things? Everything that goes on in your life is designed to bring you along on this journey. And if you press forward in faith, if you are a believer, you will make it. You will. That's great news. That's fantastic news. So what ought 
to be our response to this. Verses 31 through 36 go on and discuss our response. What then shall we say to these things? I love how Paul just kind of like throws that in there, you know, because people had asked him. People, people would say, you know, well, what's the implication of that? And so Paul's like, hey, church, what's our response to the fact that all things work together for good? And he gives some very distinct answers here. First, he says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? I would translate it this way if I was writing the Keith Meyer version, which I don't intend to do. But if I were, I would say this. Since God is for us, each and every enemy, whether it's a circumstance or a person or an event or whatever, whether it's our own internal struggles, these enemies are so minuscule and small that they should be considered as to not even exist when we compare them with the power that's at work within us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, you don't know what my coworker who doesn't like Christians is like. Do you see what's said there? If God is for us, who can be against us? That person, they have no power. They have no ability. Oh, but you know, the government, right? Conspiracies, right? You know, secular attitudes, circumstances, life, temptations, all these things that we might say, oh, you know, this will be our undoing. Yeah, be aware of that. Be aware of the ability that that might have to trip you up or to tempt you. But stand against it, knowing that God's power is indomitable, invincible, overpowering and overruling. Whatever kinds of words you need to talk about absolute omnipotence, absolute power, that's what God has. If he is for us, who can be against us? Second truth that Paul lays out here, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things work for good, and that means that all the things that you need for life and godliness and true joy are supplied and will be supplied. Some of us, whether it's because of our upbringing or because of our experiences or because of things that we've read or because of things that we've done or because of trouble we've gotten into in the past, some of us think, I am basically unlovable. Enough of you have talked to me about this and this attitude that I know that it exists out in the church. A deep sense of unworthiness that you are scum or trash or garbage or something. It's just, it's just built in there. And you kind of think, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. I'm going to be in heaven. I just don't think God really likes me. Listen to what Paul says here. Talking about God. He who did not spare his own son, there is something that God loves a whole lot. With everything within him, with every fiber of his being, he loves his son. He didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for us all, for the church, for believers. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is saying... Christian, believe that God gave his son so that you could be saved. With that is going to come his love for you. With that is going to come his care for you. With that is going to come the gracious provision of everything that you need. You could not and would not be saved if God were not going to give all these things to you if he weren't going to express his love and affection for you. And so it's important to identify the lie. If you think I am unlovable, that comes from one of three places, right? And hopefully you know what they are, the world, the flesh, or the devil, right? And so it's somebody told you you were unlovable, and that's not true. 
Second, it's you keep telling you yourself that you're unlovable, and that's not true. And third, the devil is prodding you and tempting you to believe this, and don't ever trust him because everything that he says is lies. Jesus said that. God will give us all things, everything that we need. And so when the wave of anxiety comes or the stress comes, will I make it? Will I have what it takes? Will God abandon me? Will he stand with me? He gave his son for you. He will give you everything else that you need. Put your faith and trust in Jesus and his word. But what if somebody discovers something in my past? What if some accusation comes against me? What if I commit some sin? What if in judgment some defect emerges that is the undoing of my salvation? I'm, I fear future judgment. The answer is right here. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Have you ever signed a paper or filled out a form or, you know, paid a bill, dotted the I's and crossed off the T's and you filed everything and you said to the person, now this is all correct, right? Like, I'm not going to have any trouble with this, no problems with my paperwork, you know, my tickets are purchased, the house is mine, you know, the car is mine, everything's paid. And then a couple days later, it's like, oh, we, you know, we looked over our paperwork and this is what my manager found. And so you still owe, you know, you ever had that kind of experience and you're like, what if somebody brings an accusation? What if, what, if, what if there's something that's so wrong and so horrible, whether it's in my past or my future, that would exclude me? This is what Paul says here. God is the one who justifies. He's the one who says that person is righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And he doesn't have a manager, right? There is no authority that's higher than him. There is no one who can come along and say, uh, actually, you know, you're, you're not allowed to let that person into heaven. No. God makes the laws and reflects the rules that, that design the universe because they flow from his character. He doesn't obey some set of laws that are external to him. The laws of the universe come from who he is. He makes the rules, and the rules are good because he is good. And when he says you are good, in that sense, you are righteous with the righteousness of Christ, nothing can stain that, not the accusation of the devil, not the accusation of the world, and not the accusation of your own flesh. It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is interceding for us. And so what he's saying here is Jesus died for your sins. Your present life and existence is united with him and his resurrection life. And he is praying for you and interceding with God the Father and designing and, and working through the Holy Spirit, designing your life circumstances through his prayers at this present moment. Can everyone just get louder? I think I have my microphone ringing. That's strange. Sorry. He's the one who's interceding for us. What circumstance is going to come between us and the love of God? What is it that will indicate to me that God has abandoned me or left me? What signal will I get that I am alone and I am no longer good and now I am junk to be discarded? This is what Paul asks next. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, is trouble going to separate us? Being in the midst of Distress? Is that going to be the signal that God's abandoned me? What about when persecution comes against me? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? All kinds of things that could happen to believers where we would say, God has abandoned me. Paul says, no, this is not evidence of God's abandoning you. And the 
passage tends to take a, it takes a little bit of a right turn for us here, I think, or a left turn, and we're like, wait a minute, what does that mean? He goes back to Psalm 44 and quotes this scripture. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. People read that and they're like, wait, what? You know, how does that, how does that connect? Like that kind of feels like abandonment. That kind of feels like God has left us behind or that he doesn't care or that we're, we're separated from him. Slaughtered? Like what's up with that? What Paul is saying here is that when these things come upon us, when we have these kinds of struggles, when we experience these kinds of deliverance, they come upon us. This is what Barnes, I don't even know his first name, from Barnes Notes. Um, Barnes says, all these calamities have come upon us in consequence of our attachment to God. Another Bible scholars say that the faithful take comfort in their distress in that when these trials and difficulties come upon them, they are not punishment for their sins, but they are there because of God's love. What's being said here in this passage? Paul is saying that Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. These are not evidence of the displeasure of God or of his abandonment. Instead, they are evidence that we are connected to him. I think this is probably the hardest truth in the entire passage because we're like, no, 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 no. I'll take everything. I'll, I'll, I'll receive anything that you want to give me. Like, that's great. Tell me that God loves me and will never leave me or forsake me and that I am completely and utterly lovable. Tell me that. Tell me, tell, me that, tell me that God loves me. I want to hear that. Now we move on to, and because God loves you, you you'll, you'll suffer, and it's evidence of God's love for you. No, no, no. Like, take that back. Let's, let's write that one out. There is no circumstance where we can say that something has separated us from God's love. Look at what Paul says here in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. The psalmist said, we are connected to you. We are your nation and they hate us, not because we're us, but because of you. And they're persecuting us because of you and our connection to you. You see what he's saying? He's saying that when these circumstances come upon believers, when we are persecuted for our faith or when we struggle or when we are in danger and we have to say, God, save me, help me, deliver me. I'm, I'm your child and I need your help. We're demonstrating our connection to the Father and that he hasn't abandoned us. Does that make sense? This is tough. Tough to live through. Easy to come up with an answer for, I think. But man, when someone's going through it and they're sitting across the, the table from me, you know, we're having a cup of coffee and we're talking about this kind of stuff, that's hard. And we just need to embrace it and believe it and work our way through it. And hopefully when we're on the other side, we look back and we say, no, he stayed with me and he was faithful. And the scriptures are true. Nothing, Paul says, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Paul moves on from verse 36 by saying in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors through him who loved us. We look at our circumstances and our difficulties and the struggles that we have, and we're not just kind of making it into heaven. You're not crawling over the finish line if you are in Christ. Because God has supplied the power, and because he's drawing you along by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are crushing it. You're killing it. You know, you might say, oh, but when temptation comes, it's such a tremendous battle to resist it. And I got to fight it and I struggle with it. You know, and when I when I when I defeat the temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, I'm exhausted. That's winning. That's winning. Losing is just saying, oh, temptation, I guess I'll cave. Can't resist. 
never resisted before, you know, failed so many times before. No, when we say, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to put my faith and trust in Christ. Jesus, deliver me. You promise that you're going to be with me through everything. And then you're like, I, I avoided the sin. I did the good thing. You know, I didn't do the bad thing. You know, I did, I did what God called me to. That's winning. Winning isn't a lack of trouble or a lack of challenge. You know what I mean? If, if, if that were, were winning, then we wouldn't even have the Olympics. We'd just give a gold medal to everyone, right? No, instead we're like, hey, climb up on top of this mountain, strap these two skis on your feet, and go down this amazingly different, difficult course, and don't fall over, don't smash into anything, you know, don't break anything, don't have any troubles at all, you know, and, 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 and finish in record time. And these people train their entire lives, you know, and then they do this thing, and, and everybody's like, oh, look, you know, they're leaning too far to the left. It's like, you get on there and try it. And then one person, right, does the very best, and we're like, hey, here's a medal. Not because of a lack of challenge, but because somehow, through God's providence and their hard work, they were the best. That's winning. There's challenge and difficulty and struggle in the middle of it. No, in all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most important personal discoveries in my entire study of scripture is this. Now I believe that God put Jesus on the cross to punish my sin. God took a perfectly righteous man who was also the son of God. 100% God, 100% man lived a perfect life on my behalf and went to the cross to cancel out my sin because in me dwells no good thing. There is nothing in me that would recommend me to be God's child, right? That's what we believe in the gospel, okay? Now, let me tell you this. Personally, hearing that, I always felt kind of like, so God only loves Jesus in me, right? I'm kind of secondary to this equation. Because, you know, when you die for everyone in the world, well, then, you know, you, you, you did this for everyone. Not, 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 you know, am I, am I valuable and important here? Do you, do you actually love me or do you, do you just love Christ in me? Ephesians 2, verse 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the of the, of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, which means we were children who deserved the wrath of God like the rest of mankind, right? That's our state. That's what I just described about myself, needing Christ. And here's verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Yes, Christ in you is all the righteousness that you need to cancel out your sins, but God set his affection on you and chose you and gave you Christ. Does he love you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does Christ in you cancel out all your sins? Is that the only thing that makes you able to stand in God's presence for all eternity and call him Father? Yes. This is his recipe to fix the problem. And so Paul says that nothing will separate you 
from the love of God in Christ. Not life or death. In death, we go to him. In life, Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says he is with us always. Not angels, right? No, no superpower, spectral, astral, angelic being can like get in the way of our affection. There's a demon oppressing me. The Bible says he's Lord over all the angels. He's created higher than any other being. He's been given a name above all name. And besides angels, rulers, you know, we're like, we're like the president, you know, the U.S. government, the Russians, the Chinese, you know, like they're going to, no. He's the king of all kings. Nothing present, your immediate circumstances don't separate us from his love. Nor things to come, he knows and shapes your future and works it out all for good. No powers can oppose you, whatever that word means. Read the literature on what the word powers mean. You're going to come up with 15 different interpretations. I'll just go to Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He says, all authority belongs to him. That means that if anybody wants to punish or oppress you or hurt you, they got to go and ask him, and that authority is borrowed authority, and that will work for your good. Nor height, he dwells and rules heaven and all the space in between. Nor depth, there is no pit he cannot descend to. There is no place that he does not go. There is no corner or alley or cave or dungeon that the gospel will not reach. Nor, just in case you're worried about something that doesn't make the list. But what about, and what about, and what about? Paul's like, nor anything else in all creation, which, by the way, is everything, right? (laughs) Nothing will stop the Lord of all things from loving the children that he loves. And that is the house that we get to live in for the rest of our earthly and heavenly life. Isn't the gospel amazing? What a blessing. Everything works for our good, and it is good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your care and your affection. And we thank you that it drove you that it moved you, that it it led you to send your son. However, that that plan works for a timeless being. We We don't understand. We were not good, and you were good. And so you saved us, and we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that as we lay hold of these truths, as we try to move into the house that you've built for us as we try to absorb and soak up all the good that's all around us. Father, we pray that we would simply live in the way that you call us to live, built on the foundation of the gospel, Lord, that you've given us the righteousness that we need and that you love us and will never leave us or forsake us. We pray that we would love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and that we would seek to love people around us the way that we love ourselves. We pray that we would do that by your grace and for your glory. Father, help us to see this truth as we go back out into the world and encounter our problems and our blessings. We pray this, Lord, by your grace, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.